All right, guys, we are back after being gone for a couple weeks. And uh, I know I've been busy. I think you've been pretty busy. And But I think coming into December or January, things will start slowing down for me a little more, and I'll have a little more time. But sounds like for you, too. Yes. Yeah, and we... Uh, I've actually had like two cups of coffee. This is like my third cup of coffee this morning. So you're ready pretty, to go. I'm pretty ready to go. I I think you said you said this is Colombian coffee. That's correct. Yeah, I like. I think anything from South America is decent coffee. But I'm finding out too that if you do the French press like you do, it comes out a lot better. Like I I made co- I made coffee this morning. I use a coffee maker. And it just it doesn't taste quite the same. It just it's like it's missing something. Well, I I have my son told me about it, and I, I so he bought one and uh, really like it a lot. Yeah, I'm I haven't gotten one yet, but that's on my list of things to do is to get one. I like to get an electric kettle too, as you can control like the temperature of the water a little better, and so do that and make a deep, pretty decent cup of coffee. I actually looked at getting into uh, roasting beans. It's amazing how much process goes into roasting beans. It's a uh, I have enough hobbies already. That's quite a bit of an undertaking to get into that. Yeah, a lot of guys just go out and buy a roaster and it's, it's and and go from there. You know, they don't try to. Some people do it in their oven, and I've I've not done either one, and probably never will. Yeah, it's like a whole art to get the whole to get it just right and to actually make a good coffee. But I think it's easier just to go buy the beans and just grind them up yourself. And but we've so we've gotten into. Uh, the flood last or two weeks ago. Um, so as we go into, we talked about so much stuff and it was a pretty packed episode. We had a lot of content and a lot of stuff that if you, if you don't study this topic very much, like it's quite a bit of stuff to take in. So if you guys haven't listened to that, or even if you have, just go back and listen to it again, because uh, there's just a lot of stuff in there that we covered about the scientific evidence of a worldwide flood um, but since it's been a couple of weeks, is there anything that you want to retouch on? Just that uh, even here recently, there has been items coming across for things they have found for the authenticity of the scriptures and uh, the, the fact that there was a universal flood. And it's, uh, there's a lot of information, you know, to a lot of different sites that are in apologetics or prophecy uh, of things um, that are out there. You know, and speaking of prophecy, there is this week in a, a prophecy conference in um, Norman, Oklahoma, which they talk about that they feel that the various things that for the end times that God talks about, that convergence has now been complete, that it's here. And, of course, we know that more and more people that take a stand for Christ are going to be uh, persecuted, and I think it's a responsibility of of anybody that knows these things to make sure others realize that when you take a stand for Christ, you know, they, these people can find real exception with you. <clears throat> but the bottom line is, and no matter what happens to you, the reward is far, far outweighs any of the, anything we can go that me wrong in our lives here. You know, the, the apostle Paul, when you read in second Corinthians and he talks about all the things that happened to him and shipwreck and beaten and on and on and on. And he said, these are light and momentary problems. And that's the, that's the concept we got to have in our mind, is that really this life is just a, like a vapor and it's over. Right. I think it's in Philippians where he also said that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy of being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's correct. Yeah. And when we talk about the flood, and like we did last episode, 
Um, something I actually came across this past week I thought was really interesting. I was actually unaware of it that like in 2014, there was actually a group that did an expedition up onto like Mount Ararat and they actually found a, um, it's different than the one that people commonly know about. It was a different, it was uh, buried in the ice. They had to go dig down and to get into it. But they actually, there's actual footage of them going into it, and it's a huge like boat structure, the the same uh, dimensions as of the ark. And they go in, they actually see there's multiple levels. They actually went onto each level, and it's all a whole wooden structure. And they got pictures and video of them, uh, like using their hand to compare sizes and stuff. And the, they see the whole boat frame. They see all the all the decking timbers and everything. I thought it was kind of interesting that clear up. I think it was like fourteen thousand feet up and up onto Mount Ararat. And so to get a ship clear up there, I mean, there you obviously you have to have some kind of a worldwide flood to get a boat that far up there. Yeah. As to whether or not it's actually Noah's Ark, I mean, you really, I don't know if you can really say, because there's that other structure in uh, in eastern Turkey in uh, a little further from Mount Ararat, but it's in those mountains of Ararat that's like described in the Bible. Um, but I think it's called a Darupinar, or I, I'm sh- pretty sure I'm uh, mispronouncing that wrong, but uh, but no, it's it's like a boat shaped structure and at first it looks like just a rock structure but when they've actually drilled into it and they've done ground penetrating radar they found like iron and wood and everything in there too so it's just interesting that you go that high up in the mountains and there's ships up there yeah that is interesting um you know i recognize some people would say well you know because of tectonic plate movement it could push push the mountains up you know and the wonders on the floor would push up with it but uh, probably if it would push up with it, it would be destroyed in the process because of all the, uh, you know, all the, all the turmoil that's going on with, as, as, with a wooden structure as it moves up. But, you know, the the bottom line is, is that um, the, the, around the world, you look at the mountaintops and you'll find uh, fossils of various creatures up on top, you know, from oceans. So uh, and it's been well documented, and you can use all sorts of excuses, but uh, I think about the the real uh, the real thing is is it really says somewhere on the line there's been one heck of a flood, and I believe it to be global. Exactly, and like we had talked about last week too, there's so many. Every area of the world has their own like ancient legends of a worldwide flood. All these civilizations that were disconnected, but yet they still all had the same story. And then you, you pair that with the evidences and stuff. It's it's pretty um, obvious. Um, but yeah, like I said, you, if you guys go back and listen to last week's episode, we've got we talk about so much about the the scientific evidences and the archaeological evidences for a flood. That's correct. And I was just reading this morning in Bodhi Hodges' book, uh, The Tower of Babel. Uh, he's with Answers in Genesis, <clears throat> and he was talking about Noah and the sons that come from him and how this dispersed throughout the world, which we'll be getting more into in a few weeks. But uh, it's really interesting, though, to, to, to realize that, uh, you know, that, that he's talking about how every culture around, Chinese, and he named off a number of them, uh, that have the flood, the flood, and they have Noah, and they have names of his three sons within their own uh, history. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, pretty soon you've got to start saying what, are the odds that that could happen arbitrarily. Yeah, exactly. And so now then as we go into this week, we talked about the flood and the scientific evidences all the way up through the flood. Um, and now let's go into uh, Genesis chapter 8, where it talks about more of the flood subsiding, what happened after the flood. Now between 
um, the flood story itself and the flood starting to recede up until Babel, there's not like a lot of events that's told to us. Um, so we have some of the history, at least in the Bible, that's missing to us. Um, but I think just within a couple chapters of the post-flood, there's a lot in there. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing um, through Genesis 8 and 9 because some of it is like dates and stuff. But at the very beginning, um, it talks about how it says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. And the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens were restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. Now, the rest of it goes into like how long it took for um, the waters to recede. But what I found really interesting is last time we talked about the fountains of the deep breaking open and how the torrential rains happened. And then it said at one point, it says that, that God had ceased the fountains of the deep to to essentially stop uh, producing water and for like uh, for it to stop raining. And so, which we had talked about last week, again, um, how we still find that there's still pockets of water under the Earth's crust that is still like coming up into the ocean. Um, and so that's kind of interesting that um, when we talk about the fountains of the deep breaking open, not all of the water was expelled during the flood, that there was still some of it. Because at one point, God had stopped all that, and there was probably still water that was left because God didn't allow it all to uh, come out onto the earth. There's uh, aqueducts that are down deep right now, I mean, that like come out of the uh, Great Lakes, and uh, they know that, you know, I know they're out in uh, uh, Nebraska, uh, Kansas area, that those aqueducts go out there. In fact, uh, there's a lot of people wanting to do various things with those. But uh, bottom line, though, is that there's a lot of water that's underground now. Right. Something I thought about this past week um, that's interesting, too, is we had talked about the changing of the the geography because of the flood, how, you know, you had the uh, plate tectonics um, and how mountains could have been formed by uh, the hydroplate theory, Um, but also that just um, there's lower pop areas of the earth that probably weren't as low as they were before. And there's mountains that probably weren't there before. And something that's interesting is if you have these pockets of water under the crust and now all of a sudden the water's not there, now it's on top, you're going to have more of this weight pushing that part of the crust down. It's probably going to sink down. I think that's why we have lower, uh, that very much could be why we have lower parts of the ocean is because that was where there was pockets of water that once there, once there was an empty space that the weight of the water on top could have easily pushed uh, um, all this damp and wet um crust of the earth to into a lower spot and giving us these lower places in the ocean. Absolutely. And and we know that for a fact that there are cities at the bottom of the ocean that were very large cities. And uh, so that's, that's something that's uh, we are well aware of too. And so that's uh, you, when you have tectonic plate movement, especially on that scale, you know, you could think about all over the world, you could have cities that would, uh, would go under and, uh, so and that may be where the great bulk of the uh, human population is at, is the cities that actually went down, uh, you know, under the flood and uh, at the time where some were lifted up, you know. But the point is, is that we uh, we know that that's why that the ark was built at the right proportions for people to be able to, that lived in it, the eight people that lived in it would be able to float and, and it's ironically that they would know that unless they were told that's what specifically to do. But it, uh, but as far as around the world, uh, with you know, with the tsunamis and 
the the land that they built that is on dropping out from underneath them, going down, you know, a uh, thousand feet or more. Uh, yeah, you're gonna. That would be very much uh, a real detriment, to, real quick. I mean, it would just be almost instantaneous in some ways if it dropped out quickly. In fact, something instantaneous had to happen really quick because you know they found a woolly mammoth. And it had green grass, not not brown grass, but green grass in its stomach. It had been frozen. And uh, if they said after about 30 minutes, it would have been brown, you know, when he's through his digestive process. And so for that to happen, the temperature have, would have had to have been over 200 degrees below zero. And it, almost instantaneously. And uh, I had a friend of mine who is a, the chemical engineer, and uh, quite accomplished one, and he is a certified uh, genius. And he said when he was young, and he read about that that woolly mammoth, he immediately started questioning the whole theory behind uh, evolution from the standpoint that they're saying that everything happened uh, with uh, uniformitarianism and a real everything being the same and a slow process and everything else. And he said, uh, well, how could that be true if, if the woolly mammoth died that quick? And he told me that was the very first re- time that he started questioning the whole theory of uh, of evolution was because of that. And so that's that's some of the evidence that we have now that something very catastrophic happened. Exactly. What's really interesting, too, is um, the question of whether or not they had the winters and— um, like the snow and the ice that we have now be, uh, before the flood, because we have the a huge um, climate change after the flood. As we have evidences, like we had talked last time about a uh, uh, an ice age, and that we have evidences for that. And now we have up in Greenland, we have Antarctica, we have these ice caps, um, as well as these seasons that go into cold seasons. But there's a it's a possibility that that didn't really exist beforehand. It was probably mostly green um, vegetation before the flood. And uh, after and you had mentioned how something had to happen really quick after, um, to freeze us woolly mammoths. What's interesting is you go into uh, Genesis chapter 9, and it's after they come off of the, the ark, and where he says, uh, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird upon the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands will be delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about that. Is um, first of all, you don't have the issue of of uh, I guess carnivorous animals being a problem on the ark to start out. So like lions and tigers and all these animals um, that we definitely wouldn't dare being in a closed space with half the time. Um, that wasn't really a problem until after because it said the fear of man wasn't put in animals until after the flood. But also, man was allowed to start eating animals after the flood as well. And and you can kind of see where things were orchestrated because before the flood, they probably wouldn't have had to have super warm clothing. I mean, things probably would have been a little more um, bearable climate. And then you have this ice age that comes in. It's probably something they've never seen before. And now they have to have something to keep them warm. And so the fact that they can now eat animals and use those hides to make clothing, it's kind of interesting how that could all come together, um, yeah. how God orchestrates all that. Well, you know, we had a speaker at our church, um, Mike Schneiderly. And he's with Mission Imperative and also works with Walt Brown. Uh, just for, for credibility's sake, Walt Brown has a PhD 
in uh, mechanical engineering from Massachusetts Institute of Technology or MIT. Um, so he's quite an astute individual. And I had a friend of mine that had him uh, as a teacher. And he said, very, very sharp guy. But Mike was saying something, because Mike does a lot of work over in Africa. He takes tours over there, people on tours and that sort of thing. And Mike said, it's really kind of interesting. You'll see a big body of water out there, and around it you'll see different animals drinking, you know, antelope and lions and tigers and all sorts of animals like that. And they all keep an eye on each other, you know, kind of wary, but the bottom line is they're all kind of there. He said, but you let a man step out of the forest where they can see him, they all run. And he made the imperative that where God put it in them to run, you know, that they would have the fear of man. And now you wouldn't even think that would bother them because, you know, there's, there was also, uh, you know, various forms of primates out there drinking too. But when man stepped out, they run. Exactly. And what I like doing is um, I'm a big history person. I like to like, when I read things about history, I like to kind of imagine what it would be like to be in that time and kind of see things from their perspective. And you kind of have to do that with the Bible too, because we see things um, in our cultures different than it is in the Bible. And I think that very much can affect how you interpret the Bible. Um, For example, back like in the first century or even before that, uh, the supernatural world wasn't something like... um, taboo or big and mysterious like it is today like back then people very much acknowledged the the supernatural realm and uh, uh they did not deny like demons or angels or any of that by any means because that was just a part of their culture and but now when we re- go back and read that we have to understand that that's like the viewpoint they're coming from and it's the same with about anything else throughout like especially that far back like in the biblical era um we have to kind of understand their culture kind of where they're coming from too yeah, you know, one, what really alerted me to that m- many, many years ago, I was reading a book called The Bush is Still Burning by uh, uh, Lloyd John Ogilvy. And he was over in Israel uh, on tour, and he climbed up to the top of a hill, and it was towards evening, but just starting to, to go twilight. And he looked over the hill, and there was four shepherds there with this huge mass of sheep. And he kind of watched them for a minute, and all of a sudden the, the shepherds broke apart, and each one got in a kind of a you know a square away from the others, and they started calling out, and with their call. And the next thing you know, one group of sheep followed one shepherd, another shepherd got his group, and just by calling them out, all the sheep separated in the whole bit. And he said that brought to mind what Christ said that my sheep know my voice. Now you, know, I never understood it, but in that culture of that day, they understood what that meant that hit the, the people that were truly Christ, that they would follow him because they understand his voice and understand who he is. And there's so many other things that you go through the, the scriptures when you understand the culture, the time, the farming methodologies. Um, well, I know you've probably heard the one where the, uh, uh, a number of people have read this, where there was a, uh, a group was they're talking about uh, studying and they something about being a silversmith and something to the point of silver, the way they refine it. And uh, so they decided, what in the world does that mean? So they went to a guy that actually re- refined silver. And um, and he said, yeah, what I have to do is, you know, I, he turns the fire up in the crucible and, and a whole bit. And he said, uh, I got to be real careful because if I get it too hot, it'll vaporize the silver. 
They said, well, how do you know when you need to stop? He said, oh, that's easy, when I see my image in it. And that's what the Bible referred to. And so by understanding, you know, various practices that, that people were doing out there, it just opened your, the scripture up of what God is really trying to tell us. And there's, you know, many uh, evidences of fishing and other agricultural things along those lines uh, that, you, that you learn. So understanding the world they lived in, the political thing. And I think we've discussed this in the past. You know, a lot of people would say, oh, that Luke is so messed up on how things are back in those days from the standpoint of the hierarchy of the governments and that sort of thing. Well, more the more they studied Luke and the more they had archaeology come along, he found out he was 100% accurate. And then they started saying he's a first-rate historian, not not the biblical people, but the secular people. So yes, uh, understanding the times and the whole bit helps you helps illuminate you to the, what the scriptures are saying and the message God is trying to get across to you. And that's why I think we can't be just casual Bible readers. Like that's why we have to be able to study, actually dig into and study the Bible and actually understand the context behind what's actually being said. Because I think that's one of the problems with the modern church nowadays is people are all about having a verse of the day. Well, I'm going to read this and glean something from it. And they don't understand the context behind all that. Uh, for one example, I think is in uh, Philippians chapter four, the verse, uh, the verse says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And people use that verse as like, okay, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do accomplish this. And I mean, but when you read the whole context, he's talking about persecution. He's talking about um, being put in prison. He's talking about being poor, about being starving. Um, and then he goes into that verse. And so understanding the context is like things aren't always going to be happy. And when it says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be prosperous and, and everything's going to be just happy-go-lucky, that um, the whole context of that verse is uh, persecution. And so I think that's why, again, you have to go into the context of what's being said and understand more so the minds behind the people who are actually writing that. Um, because our culture and the way we see things are so much different now than it was back then. Well, you know, Chris, that's exactly right. I uh, I had a situation where I found out about Precept Ministries in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and now it's just called Precept. But uh, this was back over 20, probably right at about 25 years ago now. And uh, it's a long story, so I won't go into the whole bit, but the bottom line is, uh, their whole concept is to teach the contextual study of the Bible, how you do it, and how you can get the most out of it. And uh, I've uh, I very much have used that process. So I stayed in down there at their place for two weeks and studied contextual teaching. Plus, I've been to other seminars. I've went. My wife and I have went, and me and a few other friends that I said persuaded them to go, and they all come back saying, "Boy, this is great." But the truth is. If we don't keep things in context, it's pretext. We're walking in it, we're thinking that we, you know, we're going to cherry pick what we want. And if you cherry pick something and don't really look at it in the context, you may be interpreting it 100% wrong. And the context starts at Genesis 1, verse 1, and uh, it, it, to be able to understand the scriptures. And if you look at people that develop, uh, for instance, various uh, doctrines of the Bible, they take it and they go through the Bible completely on that particular subject. 
and uh, you know, there's many, many people who've written uh, systematic theology books and and doctrinal books and that sort of thing. And that's how they do it is by doing this uh, uh, study. It was said of uh, Harold Wilmington of uh, Liberty University that he doesn't he doesn't study or he doesn't just read through the Bible 40 times a year. He gleans through it. If you know anything about gleaning, that's hard work. And he gleans through it 40 times a year. He wrote Harold Wilmington's Guide to the Bible. It's a large book and very thick. I had a friend of mine that's, that's used that quite a bit, and he said he just I think it's an outstanding book. But, it, but the whole point is he knows what the context of the Bible is, and if you start pulling something out of context, then you've got a problem. I ran a uh, I ran a, a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, and I had a pastor come in that moved into this area, and he lived out in California, and man, he had been quite schooled. And uh, I made a statement one day to him <clears throat> that when the Holy Spirit came, you know, as a as a uh, uh, as a wind, he said, "Are you sure that's what that says?" And I said, "Well, yeah." And he said, "Well, look." You got. You said you got a lot of Bibles right here. You know, because I'm selling Bibles. It pull one out. See what it really says. And it doesn't say there's a wind. It says it was a sound, like a mighty wind. So when people think that, then a lot of people will abuse that. And one guy is, uses that to collect a lot of money. You know, because he supposedly can see this going on. What he was saying is, make sure you read it and read it very carefully. Read it in context, and look at what it truly says. And it's like, and you get in uh, Revelation and that sort of thing, it'll say it's like this. They're doing their best way to humanly describe it, but they truthfully, it's beyond human capacity. And that's what Paul talked about when he got either by vision or translated to heaven. He just said it was, uh, many things were inexpressible. And so we always have to be very, very careful when we're trying to interpret the Bible. And it's it's written by one of the most not one of the most, the most brilliant mind that we can comprehend, which we can't comprehend truthfully. And so that's, yeah, I'm very strongly thinking that many people get very arrogant, thinking they have it all wrapped up in their little pocket, and they don't at all, not even close. I think a great example of that, too, is when you look at Jesus' baptism, it says that that the Spirit of God came down on him like a dove. And so you see all these, like, cliche paintings or pictures or whatever of, like, a dove hovering over Jesus— that's not what it says. It doesn't say he came down in the form of a dove. It says he came down like a dove. What was best, what they could best humanly describe something that they can't, that their eyes just can't comprehend on a human level. And that's why I think I like studying um, different texts like uh, Josephus, which is an outside, uh, it's an extra biblical text, but he uh, he's a, a Hebrew historian um, that pretty much goes into talking about the history behind what's going on around the first century. Well, actually he starts actually out with the old Testament and leads up, but then he talks a lot about the culture and the context behind like what things were like back then. And, and uh, it gives you a little better perspective of like uh, when you see people writing in the Bible, like what they're actually seeing and what they, what life is like for them. And there's a lot of um, extra texts that you can go through and read that give a little more context. Like, um, some of them I think are, I think when you talk about extra biblical texts, I think there can be a lot of controversy with that. Like there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of books that didn't get put in to the Bible for various reasons. 
Um, but there's like the Maccabees, there's like the book of Enoch, there's like a second book of Esther. Um, there's one called the book of giants, which is similar to the book of Enoch. And there's a lot of these that you kind of have to take with a grain of salt, but if you read them too, you can get a little more, um, a little more historical and cultural context out of it. But like, what's, what's like your opinion on some of those, um, extra biblical well i think some of them you know like you said that they may have value like i've read that maccabees is excellent historical background um i've also as you know that uh, jude quoted out of the book of enoch and um so uh, the, some people feel though that there was some things people added to the book of enoch and uh and one guy he didn't have very one uh Biblical scholar, I should, I guess we could call him. I ain't using the word scholar. I like to say, uh, you know, people of that learned people of the Bible. But uh, he felt that there was uh, some sidewinding type of individuals that uh, went ahead and put some stuff in there that really wasn't didn't pertain to what the it was. But it's kind of like in the middle, or the parentheses they stuck in. I don't know personally. I just know that what I have seen in the uh, Book of Enoch. It really, there's a lot of it that just comes right down to uh, being the same thing as in the Bible. And uh, it's so I think it has a lot of merit or Jude when they used it. Exactly. Well, I think, too, one of the one of the things, and again, this comes back to context to understanding the culture back then, is nowadays when you think of plagiarism, you think of you take someone else's writing or work and you just copy and you say it's your own. Back then, plagiarism was different. Someone would do their own writing and then they would use their name as being a, a big major uh you know, famous person. So I think that was one of the things about Book of Enoch too, was that they were unsure of who actually wrote it, about whether it was actually Enoch or whether it was someone else um, who wrote it and then used their name as Enoch because that's just how they did plagiarism back then is they would write something, then they would um, go under the name of someone who was more well-known. And I think that's one of the reasons why that was that was kind of thrown out um, from being put in the Bible is because it was, it was they weren't sure of actually who wrote it. Yeah, I think that's correct too. From what I've seen, you know, they there was uh, the uh, learned uh, Bible students of old spent a lot of time in the scriptures, spent a lot of time in history. If people think it was arbitrarily put together, they couldn't, uh, uh, they can't fathom the amount of time that was put into that, the study, the whole bit. And some of those people were very, uh, well, extremely high IQ. As the truth is, and they had. Many of them spoke many different languages besides Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Uh, so uh, we need to be very respectful of them, but we also need to recognize that uh, you can be the most brilliant people on earth, but you can be predisposed to a given point of view. And as we've told, talked about in the past, where the uh, one individual from uh, Harvard said, uh, uh, you know, he knew that uh, everything looked like creation, but we can't let a divine foot in the door. Well, that's being predisposed to your given point of view and doesn't allow for good science. And so we always have to be careful when we study this. And, uh, you know, I like to study a, a, a different people, but I also like to study the Scripture. And things, and let, you know, God will help illuminate you. There's been things God has given me over the years that uh, I thought, well, this seems to be what he's saying, and, I, and the dots really connected well. Well, then, you, you know, you may think you're the only one getting it. Well, then pretty soon you run into somebody that has not only got it, but they've elaborated on it. And uh, so God had moved in a lot of different places and a lot of cultures. You know, one of the things that I, you know, you talk about culture things. We had a guy come into the United States from one of the formerly Iron Curtain countries. 
And uh, he heard a lot of people talk about, well, I'm going to commit to this, and I'm going to commit to that, and I'm going to commit to this. He said, and this guy had been a Christian in a communist country, you know, when it was, and he had a lot of, lot of problems you know, underneath communism. And he said, I think you have got the wrong word. I think the word you should use is surrender. And when it comes to God's will, many times that's the hardest thing for us to do is to simply, like Jesus said, if you don't want to know it's my will, obey it. We want to come along and say, God, I want definitive proof. But the truth is, if Abraham, that's why Abraham is held so highly among the Christians and Jews and Arabs, because he believed God and was credited to him for righteousness. And he showed his belief when he... Uh, when God finally had him born, a son born between him and Sarah, and he was born, and God said, I want you to take him and sacrifice him. And he took an entourage with him of two people, had uh, wood on the back of uh, Isaac, had a, a, a knife stuck in his sheath that he was carrying, and when they got to a given point, he said to the uh, to the entourage with him, he said, you stay here, we're going to go worship. That's a little strong word for worship when you're going to go sacrifice your son. And he went up there. Of course, you know the story where God provided a ram, which was equivalent to Christ of the whole bit. But the bottom line is, in the whole process, is that um, God, by him, him personally trusting him, he has become the... The, the father of many nations, and then the scriptures tell us that uh, he said we will come back because God had promised him that the Isaac would be his seed for the world, and he said to these entourage, we will come back. And over in the uh, in book of Hebrews, it talks about the very fact that uh, uh, he knew God was going to uh, resurrect him if he had to to bring him back. Now that's a tremendous amount of faith that you and I and a lot of people would, would sit there and say, you know, boy, I don't know if I can do that. But but he did, and sometimes that's what God calls us. Just put your trust in him for what he says. Right, right. And I think uh, um, I think God also speaks to us, like, in different avenues. And there are certain things, like, uh, um, I think it was uh, Paul, and I can't remember exactly where it was at, but where he had said— uh, Oh, where there was someone going around claiming to, I think, claiming to be an apostle, and and that all these other guys, uh, the rest of the church were all like ridiculing and stuff. And Paul said, "Hey, if he's putting the gospel out, and and it's like he may not be always be accurate, but like he's like people are still coming to Christ because of him." And uh, like you know, I had actually just talked off air about uh, about Andy Stanley and about some of the things that he's been teaching that we disagree with, and um, but at the same time too. Um, even though someone can be off in some areas, I think God can also use them in different, in other ways. And, uh, like we talked about extra biblical texts and some stuff may be like, you know, questionable, but other things could also, God can use to also illuminate you to certain things he wants to teach you. Uh, for example, like Josephus, um, I've started to have a little better understanding of the culture and the history behind the Jews and behind, um, behind like what's being written in the Bible because of that. Um, like book of Enoch, that's kind of ridiculed, but that's kind of given me a, a little broader perspective as to the supernatural realm and really what, how more vast the supernatural realm is than what we a lot of times will give credit to. And so, yeah, I think even though there's things that we like to write off and say, and say, um, say, well, that's wrong. So we're, um, so it's like, we're just going to completely discount that. 
but at the same time too, God also will use things to, um, to illuminate us to what he wants us to learn, even though it may not be what we would think would be used. Um, on the other hand too, you also have to be aware too that, um, I think it was also Paul who said, uh, who said, be very, uh, studied up in the word. So when false prophets come around, you can identify them. And so there is that balance there too. Exactly. Um, you know, the old, um, Back when I first became a Christian, about 45 years ago now, I had a uh, pastor that uh, was quite a Bible student, to say the least. And he said back in the day now that we realize that technology has changed dramatically. But back in the day that they would, you know, we'd have counterfeit money out there. And he said to, to be able to train people, they would take them into a school and for six months, all they did was study the real thing day in and day out, study it, go through it in detail. And they said once they knew the real thing, they knew when something was a, was a counterfeit. And I believe that is totally true by really studying the Bible. And that's what I think uh, Precept has done down there in Chattanooga. Is, and it's had an effect all over the world where people are studying the Bible. And... Um, the, uh, from a contextual standpoint. And so once they do that and somebody says certain things and they say, wait a minute, that, that can't be true because of this, or you're cherry-picking for your own personal interest, and that sort of thing. Those, these are things we always have to be careful of. In fact, uh, <clears throat> Paul said to Timothy, come suffer with me for Christ. Now, how many people would sit there and say, oh, gee, I want to do that. I mean, it's not exactly a calling card you want to hear but the bottom line is, God made it very clear, if you want to live for him, uh, if you, in fact, it's said over in the, uh, uh, I think it's the left Thessalonians, anybody desires to live a godly life will be persecuted, not might be the whole bit. But if you lay your life on the line for Christ as a witness every day, uh, you're going to find people that are going to strongly oppose you. Yeah, exactly. And... Uh... So as we're studying through, uh, like, the flood, um, we're going to kind of go back to Genesis chapter 8. And uh, and as you read through, I guess really kind of starting about verse 6 all the way through uh, pretty much to the end of the chapter, um, we read about how it's pretty much the account of the flood receding. And what's interesting, too, to point out, and I think this is important because I think this trips some people up when they're studying the Bible— is we read through this first one through five and it talked about how at the end of 150 days, the water abated in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat and the waters continued to abate. And then after that, it goes into how Noah opened the window of the ark. He sent out a raven, he sent out a dove and um, to test to see how far the water has gone down. And we had mentioned this before, but the way they wrote back then or the way they told history was they gave a very like a synopsis overview of the event. And then they went more into detail. We see that with creation where it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes into more detail how he created the heavens and the earth. And he talked about the sixth day creating man. And then the next chapter, he goes more in detail. And so it's kind of the same thing here. He, he uh, there's like an overview of the waters of the earth coming down and receding. And then he goes more into detail of the events kind of leading up to that. Um, what's interesting is, uh, when you think about, again, kind of going back to putting yourself into the perspective um, of the people who were lived back then, you're on the ark for, 
months and now the water starts to recede and all of a sudden you're landing on a mountain and can you imagine like what it would be like when you finally hit on the mountain and the the ships landed but now all of a sudden like you just have to slowly watch like i think it was like almost a month and a half watching the waters continue to recede before you can even come out and kind of almost the anxiety you'd have of like okay i'm ready to get out of this um, but can you imagine like getting off the boat and everything you knew is completely destroyed and now like the geol geography is all changed everything is completely changed now you got to start anew and all you have really to work <coughs> work with are these damaged raw materials you have all these petrified trees and you have everything that's been waterlogged and then you have stones since about all you really have to work with without having to pull wood off the ark and then you have the animals that you just had had with you and so you're starting completely new and so I we talked about this last week how God basically reset the whole earth um, to start out with eight righteous people and now we've kind of gotten to where we are now. But it's just kind of interesting to think about what it would be like when you get off that ark and now you're the only people in existence and now um, it's your it's your kind of duty to repopulate the earth and now to start building up civilization again. Which also I think is interesting is too is um, in this verse and or in this uh, chapter also in the next chapter. More than once, God tells them be fruitful and multiply, and which is interesting because nowadays, you know, with the whole new world order, they're wanting to decrease the population, and it's you can see where Satan's trying to do the exact opposite is trying to decrease the population where God said to actually multiply the population. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, a lot of times when you think about the ark, a lot of people want to apply their own knowledge to it. They don't really sit back and apply what God can do. You know, I've had some people say, well, what about all the food? Well, understand that, number one, a lot of the animals may have been, you know, um, half-grown, if that big, and some of the animals may have hibernated the whole period of time. And we've got to understand that, you know, when uh, when the uh, Eve was, was brought about, uh, God put Adam in a very deep sleep, and then he brought about Eve. And, you know, there's so many things that could have happened on the ark as far as the animals and the food that they ate, the amount that they ate, the time they slept. We don't really realize what those are. And so, therefore, for somebody to say, oh, I know. And besides that, if it was a divine act to create the universe, if it was a divine act to bring about the flood, we think God can control what goes on on the ark. That would be ridiculous to say that. Exactly. We tend to put God in a box and think just because it's impossible for us to do it or because we don't see it happen every day that we think that the creator of the universe can't do it. And uh, also, you know, we when we look through the uh, this whole story of the flood, I'm going to skip forward to chapter 9 because I think I had mentioned something um, just here a couple minutes ago that— uh, that what God told Noah and his family to multiply the earth. In fact, that's not the first time you see that in the Bible. You see that throughout the Bible. Like I'm um, with Adam and Eve about where God says, be fruitful and multiply the earth. Um, and then we see Satan turned around and want the, trying to do the exact opposite, you know, through abortion, like today, through abortion, through like the um, through like the New World Order and through these different ways that they're trying to decrease the population. And um, we see where Satan... Um, Satan takes things that God put in place and God, God designed, and then he distorts it and he perverts it in his own way and essentially does the opposite. We see that with um, in Genesis chapter 9, uh, verse 11 says, I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that was with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and my bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of the flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When my bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh and all that's on the earth. And what we see is nowadays, the rainbow, well, in this passage, we see that God put the rainbow in the sky as a way for all us and God, for us to see that it's a covenant between humanity and God, that God will never flood the, do a worldwide flood like, like here in Genesis ever again. And so the rainbow is... Uh, sign of one of God's promises and his covenant. And now we see nowadays uh, the LGBT community is taking the rainbow and and turning it into a symbol of perversion. And it, it's, again, another one of those examples of Satan taking something that God has put in place, either um, something he designed or some a sign of his covenant, and completely distorting it and turning it around. And what's actually what's interesting as I was thinking about this is we see uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that we'll get into later, um, how uh, that city was completely destroyed. In fact, God said he completely destroyed the city, and there's still nothing left of it. You can go there, and you can find the ruins of it, and you can find like where there's um, where the city had never been rebuilt. And there's a lot of other evil things going on in the city that caused it to be destroyed, but homosexuality was a big one. That's even why the, the whole city was called Sodom. Um, but it's very possible too, back in the flood days, that that was very much a big thing as well. I mean, we, we know that it, that, um, by the time the flood came, it said that every imagination was evil, but there's probably also that going on. And so now after we have the flood, God puts his rainbow to say, when I see this, I'll remember my covenant between you and me. And now Satan uses this symbol also to represent something that God sees as a perversion and has destroyed in the past. And so it's almost like Satan's taking a symbol of God's covenant and using it as like a slap in the face to God. Yeah, and you know, something to think about on that, you know, the ground was watered by mist before. And uh, so there wasn't uh, the rain upon the earth. And um, the the mist may have had, as it was coming out of the ground, if the sun was going through it, uh, the water may have had the prismatic effect to see the, uh, you know, kind of a, the colors that come out of it. And uh, on the ground and that sort of thing. Well, God took that, uh, you know, and that's exactly what goes on when it's up in the sky in the clouds. There's a prismatic effect, and you get the all the different cold uh, colors that uh, rainbow produces. And I've even seen double rainbows and triple rainbows before at one time during various storms and that sort of thing. But you're right. Uh, a lot of people do want to take what God has said. Uh, re- brings forth his holiness and try to pervert that and his sovereignty and his glory. And um, that is an abomination to God, you know. And the um, it, it it's something that we need to, you know, the, over in Proverbs, it's got heavy, they've got seven heavy sins to God when the seventh is the worst, causing division among the brethren. And if you cause division among the brethren, boy, then... Uh, uh, God calls that the abomination, and I think we always need to be careful about how we use God's, uh, you know, His His symbology that's of the Old Testament. That's just and and a given example that we've seen. If we when Moses was out in the desert, 
And they, they, God says, strike the rock. And he did, and water come out. And the second time he told him, speak to the rock. And he struck it out of his anger. And God punished him by not letting him see the, the land of Israel. Now you go over to uh, Corinthians, and it says that spiritual rock was Jesus Christ. And it really represented that once Christ died once for sins and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. It was symbology. And the bottom line is, it's blasphemy when we ask, when we say, well, I've my work is as good as him. Because if we remember in the... Jesus said that people come to Christ and said, well, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Didn't I do this? He said, away from me, I never knew you. And what they're doing is saying, doesn't my work qualify as good as what you did on the cross for all the sins of the world? And, of course, it's not even close. And that's when they're trying to qualify themselves by their own merit. And, you know, you go to Colossians, it said that God moved us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, not ourselves. They were not by our works or, works or righteousness, Paul says, and uh, but it's by the mercy of God that we're, we are what we are. And I think we need to uh, to grasp and understand that when it comes to uh, the symbolism and that sort of thing, it has holy implications to it, and all the sacrifices. In fact, Christ said of the, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and he talked to them, and he said, I fulfilled those in my death. You know, I have come to fulfill them, not to abolish them. And so when they all pointed to Christ, such as the spiritual rock, uh, he, he wound up fulfilling that, and then he establishes the new covenant. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we see we see where, um, where what God puts in place is perverted or distorted in some ways. And like you had just mentioned, um, when Christ died for us and he did all that, and that we... Had now have this inclination that well we got to be good enough to do what Christ did again. It's just trying to uh, uh, undo what Christ did uh, in a sense. And like I said, like with this the rainbow, how it's a symbol of God's promise, and now Satan has distorted it into being a, a symbolism of perversion. Even like within the LGBT community, you know, in earlier in Genesis when we read that, uh, say God created male and female, and He didn't create hundred different genders. He didn't create a male in a female's body. He didn't, you know, he didn't, um, we know if you're a Christian and you uh, are siding with, or you are sympathizing with the LGBT community, you have to consider like, does God make mistakes when he creates things? You have to answer that question first. Cause if he makes, if he doesn't make mistakes when he creates humans, um, then um, either, either God's wrong or we're wrong when we're saying that a male is born to a female's body because that would be a sign of God making a mistake. And then also, you know, in Genesis, where you read where God says marriage is between one male and one female, and now we have, you know, with the whole push for the gay marriage, um, you know, that's just a distortion or perversion of what God puts in place. And uh, I believe it was in Matthew, it was in the New Testament where Jesus, Jesus uh, talking about children, says if you offend one of these um, children, that you won't be found without guilt. And now we have where Satan uh, pushes abortion through our culture. And so everywhere where we see where God has a promise or has set something in motion that is part of his design, that Satan has always tried to uh, distort it or pervert it in some way. Yeah, they, the Bible says he mas- masquerades as an angel of light. 
And uh, you know, we always have to be careful. In fact, Paul makes it very clear, you know, test the spirits. And how you test the spirits, you got to know the Scripture. you got to, uh, you know, uh, David said it best. He said, uh, I hide my word in his, uh, my my heart, God's word in my heart, so I won't sin against him. And uh, so we uh, we have to do the same. And when you think about the fact that uh, uh, over in the book of Hebrews, it says that, that about the law, if you think that the, just, the, the, the punishment and the judgment that happened of the law was bad, how much more when you, when you uh, in essence, trample on the blood of Christ? And because it was a greater revelation, greater responsibility as happens at that point, not less. And a lot of people say, oh, it's the age of grace. Well, the Bible also says, work out your salvation, not work for, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, uh, you know, because, uh, and it says that God will discipline those whom he loves. And the Bible also talks about that the, that the, his wrath is coming upon those who are disobedient. And his wrath is nothing, we're not talking about a slap on the wrist. And we need to recognize that uh, we are, just tiny little organisms on a small little orb in this and on this uh, in this major this huge universe, and that is only part of God's realm, and uh, because this is made for us, so and we can't take God and put Him down into a little, little box as you were saying earlier, and think that we have control. Uh, we're you know the Scripture says He laughs at people that think that way. Exactly, and. Uh... I think we mentioned again, like, I think it was maybe last time we met, or it was, at some point we had talked about how, you know, the, the God of the Old Testament, who was very, uh, very stringent on sin and like even sending the flood, um, when you read through uh, like Old Testament law, um, you see even things like adultery and um, other things like that result in the death penalty. And there's all of these um, different laws God put in place that we now see as irrelevant. But what's important to understand is that it's the same God back then as he is now. He hasn't changed. He hasn't changed his view or his standard on sin um, and righteousness. So the God who was so severe on something like adultery back then, he still that he still has that same, uh, I guess, standard for us now, even though we don't have like the death penalty for uh, sleeping with someone outside of marriage. God still has the same uh, standard as he did back in the Old Testament. And so that's, I think that's one of the things that when people read the Old Testament, they don't quite grasp a lot of times is even though things have changed into a different, I guess you could say dispensation or different uh, age of grace, um, doesn't mean that God has changed his standards on what sin is and and how we're to behave and how, what righteousness looks like. And so, um, I, again, that's that's what we were just talking about. How it's important to actually study the Bible, because if you just look over it and you read, okay, well, God, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because you know they were sinful, but now you go over to uh, like in the New Testament where the woman committed adultery and and Jesus said, "Go and sin no more." It's like, well, okay, God is completely changed. It's like, no, He hasn't. His attributes are still the same. And who God is hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and His standards as to how we're to live hasn't changed since then. Well, no, and you know, it's interesting you mentioned Son of Gomorrah because you know, remember the conversation Abraham with him said, "If I can find, you know, um, this many righteous people there, will you stop from destroying them?" God says, "Yes." 
And then he said, well, if I find, and he dropped the number, he dropped the number, even clear down to 10. And God says, yes. So there was a lot of mercy and a lot of grace going on at that point, but he couldn't find that. And uh, now if they were preachers of righteousness, as God says they were, in fact, you know, Lot kind of made that clear that uh, when the when the, the, the two angels come in and visit him and then they were they, they were trying to want to pull them out so they could have sex with them, the scripture says. And, uh, of course, then they go, then the angels, you know, caused them to go blind. And, the, and they were just kind of groped around, couldn't do much of anything. But the bottom line is, is that God gave them a lot of warning. And I mean, to think about that, if someone just said, you're going to be blind and, and a whole group is, I mean, wouldn't you think maybe you ought to get your heart right? And uh, who God is and the whole bit. So they had a lot of warning, right? A lot was there. And not the best example, but he was an example. So they've been warned. They know what's going on. So the bottom line is, is that uh, we know today from the life of Christ and the accuracy of the scriptures and the fact that you, know, you mentioned Josephus, he talks about Christ, extra biblical, where he talks about the did wonderful works and everything else. And other ones have talked about Christ from an extra biblical thing, otherwise a secular world. And so we know that, plus archaeology speaks loud and clear of the accuracy of the Bible. So somewhere along the line, for people to say, oh, gee, I'm not, uh, I, I, I don't think there's any evidence. They could be more wrong because Josh McDowell has written a book uh, 60 years ago, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and he's added to that book, I think, two or three times. And maybe another one coming up. And uh, we've also had a, and he actually set out to disprove the Bible. And then Lee Strobel did the same thing, and he wrote A Case for Christ, and, and actually which proved them. There's, because they get looking at the evidence, and they realize of the accuracy and the authenticity of the Scriptures. Yeah, and you brought up a good point that in the case of Lot, that God was gracious. Like It's not like God was this demanding, judging God that just wanted to wipe out humanity, um, like what some people think of the God of the Old Testament. Um, that he did uh, offer grace um, if there was enough righteous people in the town. You know, uh, we had we talked about uh, Cain and Abel, you know, several weeks ago, and how uh, after Cain killed Abel, you know, it's the first murder. Instead of God wiping him out, uh, he obviously put a curse on him and and told him you're going to have you know the land's not going to work for you like it used to and stuff. Um, but then when Cain said, "Well, all these people are going to come after me and want to want to kill me," and um, and he says, "Not so. If anyone wants to." comes after you to harm you, then I'll put judgment on them. And so even in the case of like the first murder, God was still very gracious with Cain. And that just comes back to our point that it's the same God in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, whether it's his standard on sin or when it comes to grace as well, it's the same God. And again, I think it's one of those things where we we don't fully understand like the attributes of God and who he is. And I think we, like we had talked about, we try to put God in a box and try to our own human understanding on a God who um, is beyond human understanding. And I, let's, uh, one way we can look at it too is when we look at Genesis, um, we just talked about the rainbow. Um, something that kind of came to mind, and I think it's good to, to for us to talk about because um, I think it's something that can con- confuse a lot of people who are reading it or studying this, is in verse 14 when he's talking about how he, it says, 
I'll just read it. It says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the cloud, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. Uh, if we go back to Genesis 8, chapter 1, it says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Um, earlier in Genesis, before the flood, it said that God had regretted that he made humanity. So that's kind of an interesting um, thing I think that some people might struggle with is, is uh, how what does it mean for God to actually remember someone? Does it mean that God kind of lost track or forgot about him? Now he just remembered that they're there or does God need the rainbow to be reminded of his covenant? And if God regrets making something, does that mean he made a mistake and now he regrets his mistake that he made? Um, I think that's an important topic for us to talk about and to dive into. Well, you know, basically over the New Testament, it talks about your works. Um, Now, for instance, I hand out Bibles. And I do it as a member of the Gideons International. And we just hand them out. A lot of times that's all we do, and then the, and the, we never see the person again the rest of our life. But God says, I keep track of all your works. And uh, so what we're really saying is, I'm not going to forget what you've done for the kingdom of God. And I think that that's the same thing with, uh, with Noah, that he's uh, telling him, I'm not forgetting what you've done and what you've been through. And, uh, you know, you're very intimately uh, in my heart. And um, so I think that that's more what he means than than the fact that he uh, had a mental lapse, uh, like sometimes I do in my old age, you know. But the bottom line is I think God was very, very acutely tied into the whole thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked Noah to do the flood and then tell him to build this and then close him into the ark I mean, everything that happened was by God gave him the strength, gave him the knowledge, closed him in, protected him, brought him back out. Uh, so, yes, uh, God was very intimate in his life. I think that's well said. And uh, as, as we're talking about, uh, I guess in this episode, we've really been talking a lot about like interpreting scripture and like um, understanding context and understanding. Um, digging more into it so you actually understand what the word is saying and if you go to the genesis chapter 8 verse 21 and you see this all over the entire bible but this is just in this passage i want to look at um, because i think it's extremely important um it says and when the lord smelled the pleasing aroma the lord said in his heart i will never again curse the ground and when you read that lord is l-o-r-d or all capitalized we also see other places where it's not capitalized and that is very significant because there is a difference in that um and you have to understand what the hebrew actually is for that and so um when you read through the bible god has a lot of different names and um each name means or represents a different attribute of who god is and so when we read the Lord, the word Lord with just a capital L ball, the rest of it is lowercase. Um, that comes that's actually coming from the the Hebrew Adonai, which actually comes from the word Adon, which is the single. So Adonai is plural. So when it talks about the Lord and it's using the word Adonai, it's actually plural. Which again, it comes back to um, the Trinity and talking about how God is plural and He's not just a single. Um, but that word actually is talking about and referring to God's sovereignty, because like when you like. Um, if you study any kind of like um, uh, like Middle Ages, like um, the word Lord was very was used for someone who owns land or someone who has power or has people under him. Um, so again, that comes down to 
um, that was the, well, that was the same case back in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. The word Lord came from that word add-on, which meant like someone who has power or someone who has wealth. Um, but then when you look at it, when it's talking about God, it's talking about his sovereignty. It's talking about his lordship of him having power and him being, um, of him owning what is in the earth, but also having uh, people that are under him as well. But when we go to, and then I think this is what's really important, is you go into where it says in that passage where the L-O-R-D are all capital, that's actually a different word, um, is the word Yahweh, which actually back in the Old Testament, the Jews wouldn't even pronounce that word um, because they thought it was so sacred that they couldn't even pronounce it with a human mouth because they thought because they re- revered God so much to that point. Um, but the word Yahweh, actually, name Yahweh actually means uh, the Lord, uh, Lord creator of everything that was created. And so which I think is significant because anytime you see that where it's all capital L-O-R-D, um, it's also it's talking about the God who actually created the entire universe. And later on, because the Jews didn't want to pronounce the word Yahweh because it was so sacred to them, eventually it turned into the word Jehovah, which is the word that, um, that Christ, that is, um, that Christ, I guess had taken on, or I guess, or or he was Jehovah to begin with. But, um, so when we read through the Bible where it talks about the Lord and we talk about Christ, um, Christ is the one who came down and is the capital L-O-R-D. So he is the Yahweh, he is Jehovah. And so which comes back to Christ, uh, Jesus actually is the one who created the rest of the world. But I think it's important to distinguish the difference between those two. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I think because one of the things that I find is there are some people that call themselves scholars that do not grasp that God many times, and you've kind of swerved into it earlier, where God uh, has a different way of writing the scriptures and a lot of times comes back to the next chapter and confirms it even further. When cha- in chapter 2 of Genesis, he comes back and basically says, uses the word of himself, of, of Yahweh or Jehovah, whatever we would probably call it, but uh, let's, we'll just use the word Yahweh. And um, so he, the, when you go to John, chapter 1 of John, it said that... Uh, uh, that Jesus Christ, everything was created by him and through him and for him. There was nothing was created that wasn't created by him. And there's many, uh, Colossians talks about that, so does uh, the book of Hebrews. But it's also interesting that John the Baptist, who was specifically set aside, at, you know, as a, that was full of the Holy Spirit at conception. Um, and we know that he even leaped in his womb when he heard Mary come into the room with, with the father of Jesus. I mean, the mother of Jesus. But the uh, but the bottom line is when they uh, when John the Baptist was doing his ministry, and we talked about this earlier, and, and they asked him who he was, and he said, "I'm a voice crying in the wilderness," and which was an Old Testament prophecy. And otherwise, he's saying, "I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy." You know, that's pretty. Some people might find that a little braggadocious, you know, to say the least. And in fact, it would be if you aren't who you say you are. But then he says, make straight the way of the Lord, which is also a quote out of the Old Testament, which you go back in the Hebrew, where that's was translated out of, make straight the way of the Lord, make straight the way of Yahweh. And so, and Yahweh says, I am the God of Israel. That he pulled Israel aside. He That's where Abraham come from, was 
from Yahweh. And Yahweh said, I'm going to make a nation for myself. And he talked about all the other gods that are the demonic powers that were over the rest of the world. And Christ even talked about the fact that Satan is the power of the world. And But he pulled people out for himself. And uh, Michael Heisner of Unseen Realm does a good job of laying that out. Um, but the bottom line is to us is that we don't recognize that connection sometimes when Christ, when the Bible says he was Yahweh, well, the many people in Israel received him as Yahweh, but a good many didn't, and he obviously got crucified. But for, for the very prime reason was that he was the lamb, slain lamb of God before the foundation of the world. He was God's lamb. Well, if you're God's lamb, you don't need anything else, and that's what the book of Hebrews is really about. And our response to that it is the book of the Bible, which ties the Old and the New Testament together more completely than any other books that are out there. Some say it was written by Paul. Some say somebody else. Uh, it may have even, in my opinion, may have been a, a collaboration between Paul and Peter and others. That uh, from Because I see uh, works of Peter seems to be in there and the works of Paul seems to be in there. But nevertheless, it is definitely by the Holy Spirit. And we have to recognize that God made it, has made it very clear that Christ was Jehovah God and uh, Yahweh. And uh, there's other places uh, uh, if where Christ challenged them and said that uh, Yahweh said unto Adonai. And um, if you go into that part of the scripture, it's also going to be claiming the lordship of Christ. But he was Lord. And a lot of people uh, gave him that accolade. And I was reading this morning, uh, that very accolade was given to him. Now, he, not just the fact that he was Jesus Christ, which now we use Christ too, too flippantly, in my opinion. He is the Messiah Jesus, and that's what Christ is, a Messiah. And we recognize the Messiah is, is from God. And we've, uh, we, so we have to understand that. And it's, I'm very emphatic on that because the scripture is, because if it's not true, you and I might as well go fishing today. Exactly. And that's where, again, it comes down to um, understanding what the perspective of the people who are writing this, what they're understanding when they're writing it. And that's where, and I know most Christians aren't going to get into like studying Hebrew and studying Greek and all that, but that is, if you don't have at least a little bit of understanding of what some of this means— it can it completely can change your interpretation of what the Bible says. Um, for example, like in fact, you had mentioned um, the unseen realm. I actually just started reading that this past week, and like within the first chapter, something that was bit really eye opening is uh, the word for God in the Hebrew. And if you look in Psalm eighty two verse one, it says God had taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment, and I think from a, a very uh, Western lens, when we read that. I think maybe because of tradition or just the way we're always taught, when we see a big G that, okay, well, that's the God God of the Bible. When we see little Gs, okay, well, that's just idols or um, something that someone else worshipped. But when you actually read um, it in the Hebrew, the both words for God are both Elohim. They're both the, the, exact, uh, the exact same word, which is actually a plural word, um, Elohim. The I am makes it plural, but... But yeah, so when we read it, like we think of, okay, big G, God. Okay, well, that's, like, I think most people just think, okay, well, that's a different type of, of 
word than what the little g God is, but it's the same word. And really what the word means is a divine being. And so, and so when it was translated out um, into, you know, like English, like we have now, um, they put the big G on there to signify that that is the God of the Bible, but it's this actually the same word. And so, and you see that too in Psalms, because that, that can be really confusing when you read in Psalms and it says that God is the God of gods or the Lord of lords. And when you, it, that can be confusing unless you uh, understand that um, what that means, if the word God means a divine being, then he is a divine being above all divine beings. He is like the sovereign being, and when you talk about Lord of Lords, he is the sovereign. He is the sovereign God over the rest of the lords and the rest of the people who have um, who have power. And so when we talk again, that comes back down to the supernatural realm. When it says he's the God of gods, he's the divine um, supernatural being above all the rest of the supernatural beings. And so I think that's again that's where it's important to actually study the word and not just be just a flippant reader of the word because you'll miss stuff like that and you won't understand the full weight of who God actually is because you begin to understand more of His attributes when you begin to understand some of these words. Absolutely, I I uh, I, I think very much you know there's there's definitely been studies of His name you know as we mentioned earlier Jehovah Jireh uh, and various other aspects of Him but that gives you totally different looks at who God is from different characters uh, uh, within his own heart, the, the total complete being that he is. I think there's like 20-some names that uh, that are connected with Jehovah in the Bible. I'd have to, I've got the information, but I'd have to pull it out of my library. But, the, but what we really need to understand is that all through the Bible, not only it points out that, uh, that there are other entities out there, and again, when we uh, look at the nation of Egypt, um, Egypt had a lot of different idols. And when, when Moses went in there, the first thing he did was lay his staff down, and it turned into a snake. Well, the sorcerers actually did the same thing. That's a lot of power, more than I've got. But, of course, Moses' snake ate their snake. And... Um, so what to show the show the power? But you look at the the various plagues of Egypt, each one of them represented one of the gods that they worship, and that's every time that you know they try to attempt to. In the first few, they wound up being able to kind of simulate the same thing, but all of a sudden, Jehovah God went way past them, and to the and uh, we've got to recognize that around. We also remember Dagon how they took the ark over into the Philistines and the, they had this right beside the, their statue and the next, next morning it was on his face. And they put him back up and next morning it was on his face again and, and they started having health problems to who laid the chunk, you know. And uh, the, uh, we have got a, a total understanding that gods will not accept any other gods before him and uh, are beside him. And... Uh, and we, because he is Jehovah God, he is our God, he is the creator of this universe, and he also goes by the name of Jesus. And we need to recognize that, and the uh, the Old Testament being Yeshua. Exactly, and what's what's also, I think, good to know, too, is in the Old Testament, um, when it talks about idols and talks about other gods, especially like we said, like in the Old Testament, it says, don't have any other gods before me. Again, that word gods is Elohim which means divine being. And so um, when we, as just Westerners, we just casually read it, we think of like, okay, it's just an idol or statue that they just happen to be worshiping. And that's what he's talking about. No, he's talking about other, other divine supernatural entities is don't put them a, ahead of him. 
Um, and so what's actually interesting too is we tend to, when we think of like the like the physical idols, we think like the golden calf, we think of like uh, Baal, we think of all these other, like you said, Dagon, um, that they didn't actually believe that the idol is like is their god. They they believe that their god, they built the idol and then the god came and lived inside that idol and they went and worshiped the god that was living inside that idol. And so, um, so yeah, you don't you don't get that unless you understand like understand what the words mean. Yeah, and that's that's what helps when you do study the cultures back then and what they mean. Michael Eisner, as you were saying, I'm glad you started reading the book. It's a phenomenal book. It changed my uh, understanding of scriptures a lot. It not only gave me uh, the survey of the Bible from where from from God to man and how God has interacted with man and come to the point of the different uh, covenants and the different epochs or dispensations, whatever you want to call them, but there are still periods of time, and uh, and then eventually winding up in the, what we call the New Covenant or the, uh, the last epoch or the last covenant, and uh, the uh, or the covenant of grace, if you want to call it. Although, if you really read the Old Testament, God has grace all the way through there. But the... Uh, the bottom line to me is this, is that we have to start going back and truly understanding what Christ said, Christ what he taught, and then looking backwards uh, many times. Because sometimes you can it takes looking at the New Testament to be able to interpret correctly out of the Old Testament. And uh, for instance, uh, you probably heard a lot of people will say, uh, well, it, the when it says Christ was born of a virgin, well, they say the Old Testament says a uh, a young woman. Well, the word it uses is for a uh, is for a chaste young woman that has never laid with a man, and so uh, virgin is a is an excellent translation. Yeah, and what's also interesting too is um, the translation Bible you has will will be different too because um, I think it's in the NIV. If you read about Jesus's birth, it doesn't say. It doesn't say uh, he was born of a virgin. It says he's just born of a young woman, and um, and like you said, sometimes like they can just take that word and then they translate it as that. But if you don't have a good grasp of like understanding the Bible and you read that, you're not going to understand that it was a virgin birth. You're just going to think, okay, well, he was just born an ordinary birth. Yeah, or you have some cults that believe that God come down and had uh, sex with uh, a girl. And uh, there are some cults out there, very large cults, uh, that uh, believe that very thing. And uh, uh, that's ridiculous. I mean, here's God, creates the whole universe, and realms beyond that, the scriptures tell us, actually. And he creates everything, the intricacies thereof, all the the powers that hold the universe together, and he still does. And then the intricacies of of all the, uh, the, the living world that we live on, and the, the DNA, when you read about the programming of it, which we've had speakers in our church that went into the, the programming, phenomenal. I mean, uh, even AI couldn't do that by close, anywhere close. And you look at all that, how phenomenal that is, and to think that God would have problems causing a young virgin to be able to have a child in him. I mean, that's that's like saying, I, the truthfully, to me, my opinion, that's like saying I really don't believe creation. Exactly. It's against putting God in a box and giving him limitations that he doesn't have. And you said that there's about what, like 20 names for God, and we're talking about how to interpret that. And uh, looking at the different 
attributes of God. I think one that I think some a lot of Christians struggle with and tend to look over is in Exodus in the story of Moses when he's uh, at the burning bush, and uh, and he says, "Well, if the people ask like who sent me, what do I say?" He says, "Tell them I am that I am sent me." I think a lot of people struggle with understanding like what that means, like when God says, I am that I am. Um, and I don't think we can probably fully understand the full meaning of that, but I mean, what's your take on it? Well, and I think, you know, what he's basically saying, I'm the all in all. I'm the son that, well, Christ said, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And so, Otherwise, it always uh, I'm totally the complete a uh, package of everything that there is, and uh, in fact, Paul talked about God. He said, "In Him we move and have our being, and He points the times and the places." Well, that's hard to be. I mean, you and I are sitting here today by doing divine providence. Is what that's saying, and so we have to understand that uh, everything is within the totality of God, and. When we start considering things that are outside, that, oh, this happened, that happened, well, then how could one sparrow fall from the sky and he knows about it? You know, ironically, I was talking recently to my grandson. He's uh, he's going to school for chemical engineering, and uh, I've taken him to the Ark and various other places. And uh, I said to him, and he's, he's got a he various college classes, he had to get a pretty sophisticated computer. And that has a lot of potential, a lot of a lot of capability. And uh, I said to him, I said, um, you know, the Bible said this life is virtual reality. This is the temporal life. It's not the not, it's not the uh, permanent. I said, think about it from a program, because God says it's all interconnected. He upholds it all together with His powerful word. How could you write a program that would contain that could bring this thing all about? And he looked at me with a look on his face of bewilderment and just shook his head as he knew that it would be a, uh, be well beyond our capacity to even think about how they even start, let alone do it. And that's kind of where we need to be with God. We need to be all with him. And he said, my ways are not your ways and your ways are not my ways. Higher are my ways above yours than heavens are above the earth. Well, man, a life. Um, I mean, we may think we're smart. In fact, a lot of people wouldn't even com- want to compare themselves to Albert Einstein or uh, Stephen Hawking or, or you know other people of that realm. But to, to none of those people could take, could look at a drop of water and convert it to a very sophisticated organic compound called wine. Exactly, and um, you know, I I think it it first again like we talked about putting God in a box. You know, for us to think that we can try to fully understand God and like his attributes, like God's the one who created the entire universe, which is a a spoken. In fact, the word universe, actually, um, when you break it down to the actual meaning of the word, it means just a single spoken sentence. And for God to speak the universe into existence, and then for us to try to fully understand that God, just the small created beings that he put on a single planet of the entire world or of the entire universe, um... And for us to think that we can fully understand God, I think is, um, it's, I guess we'd be very much in the wrong because when we talk about the word I am, um, I think it was, uh, was like in the nineties or something where Carl Sagan had said like, well, the cosmos is all there ever it was or is or will be. 
Um, but the f- reality is God's the one who always was and always is and always will be. And, uh, and the one who created everything, the one who determines all of our reality, it really comes from God. And, uh, like you had mentioned, like the alpha and omega, like he is the beginning and the end, not that he was at the beginning and he is going to be at the end. Like he, that's what he is. I think that's very hard for us as people to understand. And again, it comes back to, we can't, we, us as having finite minds cannot fully ungrasp like who God is and, and, um, his attributes and for him to be, um, the different attributes that he says he is. Like again, like the Alpha and Omega, that has to again yet to kind of understand the culture. In in the Greek, the Greek alphabet, the first word is Alpha and the last word is Omega. That's why it, some people use that as like a cliche. Oh, Alpha and Omega, but they don't fully understand what that means. But um, but again, when God says I am, it means that He is like everything that was or is and will be, and He's is the one that sets everything in motion. Yeah, and you mentioned Carl Sagan. You know, it's interesting. Um, Carl Sagan said something about that he was yearning to become that stardust again, you know. And it's kind of like he would have a consciousness. Well, that doesn't sound like an atheist. That sounds like somebody that thinks that uh, there is life after and um, and that you go, you know, into those realms. And that's not what he claimed to be. He claimed that, there, that some people are saying to me that he claimed to be an atheist. But if you're saying there's somewhere on the line once you die, you go to a consciousness state of sorts, um, that doesn't even make sense to me. Why not look if Christ, I mean, I don't know how to say it anything other than this. And I just read this morning about a number of the miracles of Christ. You know, when you, when you look at them and, and the whole bit, anybody that can do what Christ did at his command, um, we know that very much that um, that would take a power and authority beyond our comprehension. Exactly. And so as we, as we start, I think we're kind of com- coming up on what, almost an hour and a half now. And so I think like the takeaway, I think it's a, something I guess we want to leave you with is um, to do your due diligence to actually study the scriptures. Um, don't just read it. Don't just read your verse of the day. Don't just read a chapter and call it good. Like actually it does take some time. It does take some practice and effort to, to to do this, but actually dive into the scriptures and actually begin to understand the context behind it, understand like the culture behind it. And, um, like, like we were just doing a little bit of word study just now, just understanding like where the perspective of the people who are writing it, because they're coming from a completely different perspective than we're coming from. And if you don't understand their perspective, then you're not going to fully understand what they're actually telling us in the word. And so, um, and again, I don't think everyone's going to go in and study Greek and Hebrew, but do your due diligence, due diligence to actually study the Word and not just read it. Well, you know, that's true. Now, there's a, there's a free um, Bible study method that you can get off the Internet. It's called eSword. And uh, it's, it's, a good, it's my opinion, it's a very excellent work. Uh, I know there's a number of them, but this is free. Uh, you can contribute to it, and I think you should, um, to be able to, for the work that he's done. And it has a, uh, one of the things you can do is uh, Greek and Hebrew studies on there. It also has a lot of helps of various sorts. Um, so you can see I have it up now, and it has a number of, it has a lot of different types of Bibles. It has a lot of different types of commentary. commentary. It also has a lot of different uh, uh, 
dictionaries that you can tie into, and it gives you background on cities. You know, for instance, if you like, if you want to understand Revelation and the seven churches, one of the things that helps you immensely is to understand each and every location at that day and time, and all of a sudden, that script meaning of that scripture comes even stronger. And what Christ was saying to them, and he was saying it to them in real time, what's going on. And so, therefore, they understood what was going on. What Because, as you were saying earlier, within the context of uh, their daily lives. And I think we just, there's a lot of tools out there. I mean, that's just one tool of thousands. And so, all I can say is, uh, you know, you can take advantage of a precept down in Chattanooga, which has an excellent study program. And it will help you keep things in context. So all I'm saying is use the study methods out there that are there. And it's an inductive study. My boy doesn't allow you to, you don't, you don't just arbitrarily go off. You keep it within context because they always tell you context is king. And I firmly believe today that people can do that. And, and I'm a living example of that. When I, when I accepted Christ, I probably didn't know Revelation from Genesis. Exactly. And actually, I think that Easter, I think they actually have an app for it, too. So I think you can just download it on your phone, and you can just use it there, too. Um, but yeah, and also, like I said, don't be afraid to go into extra-biblical text to gain context, too. And I think one of the things, and as we wrap up, I think one of the, one of the problems I think a lot of people have is there's so much distraction. For me to sit down and take time to read a couple chapters out of Josephus, and then compare it to the Bible, and then go, maybe go in the book, you know, and do all this, um, that's a I mean, it takes time out of your day, but I I think not enough people take the, I guess, uh, the priority, make make a priority out of actually studying the Bible. They sit down, they do their five-minute Bible reading, and then they go back onto TikTok or Facebook or go to work or go about their day. And um, I think I think in order to study into the Bible, to have the passion to actually understand what it's saying and actually get what God's um, t- telling us in the Bible, I think you have to... Um, um, like uh, oh, what's it? like John fifteen says, you got to actually abide in Christ. You actually have to have that desire in your heart to want to grow your relationship with God, and you have to have that desire in your heart to actually want to understand more about God and who He is. Because really, when it comes down to it, Christianity, really is a relationship. It's about about God knowing us and us knowing God. And the only way we can know God is if we just study into who His attri- what His attributes are, and we study into who He is through His Word, and. Uh, you have just like if you're dating someone, you have to have a desire to get to know them. You have to have a desire to get to know God. And if you don't have that desire, you're just going to maybe just do your five minute Bible reading and go out about your day and not take the time to actually get to know him through his word. Yeah. You know that but James says, uh, draw close to God and he'll draw close to you. But we have a prerequisite that we have to make the effort. Uh, I mean, God will illuminate you with the Spirit. Well, first of all, when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in you and will illuminate you. But uh, we also uh, recognize that, uh, um, you know, God will—I'll just be blunt—ask questions to God. Just asking questions like you've got a conversation. I've done it a number of times. And, And as I've been reading and studying through the Bible, and I've had him bring scriptures and thoughts out of the other parts of the Testament— I haven't been even thought about maybe for a few years, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit brings it to you about what you're, the questions you're asking, the answer you're looking for, and gives you those connecting dots. I've had it happen so many times. Now, he's not going to 
to, uh, you know, if he's not going to take you, if something comes to you that is not uh, scripturally correct, that is not the right spirit. But it, it should be within the total confines of the Bible. And that's why we have to hide the word in our hearts so we won't sin against God and that we know his being just that much better. Exactly. And I don't think God um, is afraid of your questions and your doubts either. If you go to God with questions or doubts about him, uh, I think that's that's really a part of growing intimacy too, is coming to someone with a genuine openness. And uh, I think, like you said, when James, if you draw close to God, he'll draw close to you. So as we uh, finish up here, is there anything you'd like to leave the re- uh, listeners with? Just... Um... Just everybody uh, should understand one thing. God is love. God is holy. God is a consuming fire. Those speak about his love for us. and But it comes, you know, it's a holy love. And he will, and his, his, if, if you're going to spurn him, he does have a, you're going to experience this consuming fire. But they will also remember that God is light. He brings light to the world. And you don't dwell in darkness and in the muddle of life. He brings clarity of mind, clarity of thought when you put your trust and faith in him. And all, again, this gets down to Bible study, trusting Christ, getting down to Bible study. And remember one thing. Christ said that uh, the two laws that that everything was based upon is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can allow the Holy Spirit come through you and love those that way, you are very pleasing to God. I think that's well said. So, guys, as we wrap up, um, keep uh, keep listening, and we've got some more great content coming up. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We hope you have a good rest of your week.